Hello everybody, I hope you are well this Monday. I have um, um, the for good fortune of every now and again re receiving letters from fans, people following the show, and um, I get such, such great insight and some great advice and sometimes it's brilliant. And we're all learning this whole forward drive thing. Anybody who thinks that they know enough probably doesn't know very much at all because they don't know what they don't know. Welcome to The Next Journey, the adventure travel podcast with me, Andrew St. Pierre White. I'm a prisoner of this... This is a letter received from Dr. Joy Gilberton. This was actually a couple of months back, and, I, and I've read it a few times, and I read it again this morning, and I thought, I actually have to share this with you. Dr. Joy was obviously following my shows and saw me doing expeditions, camping on my own, and in the wilderness and understanding that there is a there's a security issue and he shares some and, and let me share this with you a tip mate always put out two chairs and a dog's water bowl and if anybody approaches you advise them that your mate is on the way back from from walking the doberman and if you want to ramp it up of course you can then say that the dog needs to stay on the lead because it tends to be a bit aggressive I learned this trick from a couple of old codgers many years ago. He talks about his first, and he, it's, this the real history here, he talks about his first forward drive being a 2A Land Rover in the 1970s. I'll get back to that in a minute. I've driven a two, a, a couple of times, 2A Land Rovers. They look so beautiful in pictures. So, so such an emotion, kind of a motive car, you know. Drive them, that emotion, gone instantly um, I was in the Northern Territory and learned the craft through a school of hard knocks after a couple of years and with Landy's uh, uh, moved a couple of Landy's moved to Toyota based on their superior engineering and parts availability I spent many years in remote areas well before the modern cons uh, of compass were available I have run five troopies and refused to swap to the 79 because of the initially had a lot of issues around oil leaks I didn't know about that. The starter motor uh, in the V8, the starter motor is very, very difficult to get out, and wheel tracking, that are, which I could not countenance. Also, electronics do not fit well in the bush. And some of us old guys, we tend to be a bit locked in our ways. That's normal and healthy, and it's sometimes a little bit difficult to jump ahead. I admit it, and I received a, a letter not long ago from somebody, oh, you know, move into the 21st century. And he told me that the ideal and perfect vehicle for what I do was the Land Rover Defender. And I cannot think of a vehicle worse than the Land Rover Defender. Um, so some of that old school stuff is really valuable because the new school stuff, when it breaks, you can't fix it. The old school stuff, you can fix it. So that's why we, uh, tend to be a little bit reluctant in moving forward it's seen as moving forward and I see the new 2.8 four-cylinder troop carrier as a move forward is more electronics the electronics is only in the engine and a bit of gearbox because it's an automatic gearbox so there is some electronics consultant concerned now with the gearbox so now I'm moving out of the old manual gearbox, no electronics at all, to a Toyota automatic gearbox, some electronics. 
but the vehicle is still comparatively simple when compared to Land Cruiser 300 and certainly any Land Rover products. So yes, there is a move and an almost enforced move. These electronics mostly are very good. The trouble is when they go wrong, you cannot fix them. So the question is, what is likely to go wrong? In something like a Defender, could be absolutely anything and a tiny little sensor controlling some part of the suspension can bring the entire car to a standstill and the only way you can fix it is to get an internet connection and a Land Rover dealer. So anything like that, I wouldn't be interested. But what part of the new Toyota would could get me into a situation where you are now in big trouble because something's broken you cannot fix it without an internet connection and a Toyota dealership. What go wrong on cars on expeditions? And that's the question. What goes wrong? I'll tell you what goes wrong. Suspensions go wrong all the time. It's unavoidable. And the more complicated the suspension, the more difficult it is to repair. And that's why we like solid axles, because it's simpler to repair. And... Uh, if any part of a suspension is controlled by electronics, you will never see me driving that car on a, on a remote expedition. Because I can't, if there's a minor problem, I can't fix it, let alone a major problem. So I'm happy to move forward. On the many trips I have done with friends with the, in, with Series 200s, I can match them easily, and is and, and which is good for a na naturally aspirated machine without diff lock. So you've probably got a 1HZ or similar, which is a a dog it's the engine that I've got in my Africa troopy I want it because it's absolutely simple there are spares everywhere and everybody knows that engine here in Australia is likewise it's the same everybody knows that engine that 1HZ engine six-cylinder normally aspirated and it's a dog it's underpowered quite grossly underpowered in some respects but as a bush truck it's fantastic because unbelievably reliable and it, the engine itself, even the engine itself, has no electronics. Now, I'll share a, a short story with you, and I have shared this on my channel before, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it to you again, which is the, um, which is another story about the, the misunderstandings that can that can occur with modern engine when compared to old engines. I was it was 2010, and I was about to leave on an expedition and which turned out to be a 66 days following and it's on YouTube it's following the source of the Okavango River and, and I went into Angola I firstly did a solo trip right through the Namib across the Namib solo that was about if I remember correctly 12 days and then I met up with a group and we went into Angola and then when we left Angola we then moved uh, across the border into Botswana and then followed the river all the way down just before I had dropped my daughter off at the stables and I remember climbing, it was my 105, my diesel 105. Put the key in the ignition and cranked it and the crank went and was healthy, my battery was healthy, the starter was healthy, it was cranking, not a peep out of the engine, just spinning with the starter motor. So what does that mean with a simple diesel engine? Now with a modern diesel engine it's, okay, the normal things do I have fuel but is there a sensor that's that's giving the incorrect piece of information to the ECU and if that sensor is well how do you find out 
you can't. Or it's really difficult to find a source of a basic problem like you've got fuel starvation. In my case, it was, what can it be? Fuel starvation. It, what else could it be? The engine is cranking at high speed, but there's no knock, there's no, there's, there's, the engine is just spinning on the electric starter motor, so it has to be fuel. It has to be fuel. These engines are so basic. What else could it be? Could it be electronic? Actually, it could be electronic. I remember uh, managing to get it to start and I had an inkling of what it might be. Drove it to my dealer, local de my local dealership. I remember I was very short on time, so they were the, my first port of call and uh, they were very friendly. This was Helderberg Toyota and Somerset West, those of you in South Africa watching this. I think they call themselves Helderberg, Helderview Toyota, whatever. Mr. White will be glad to help you. Just sit, well, not a problem. So the car then wouldn't start again. They pushed it into the workshop. Half an hour goes by. Can I see what's happening? Mr. White, we're just, it's not a problem. We're just, just looking for the ECU. I said, excuse me, I just want to make sure I heard that correctly. You're doing what? Uh, we're looking for the ECU. Don't worry. And I said, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. This went on for another 10, 15 minutes. And I went into the workshop and I said to the service manager, I said, please, please listen to the words I say. Listen to what I say. I know what I'm talking about. You are guessing because you're looking. I know. It doesn't have an ECU. And he immediately said, Mr. White, and I said, stop it. Listen to me. That car does not have an ECU. So stop looking for it. And he was, oh, yeah, Mr. White, oh, but then, again, kind of being a bit condescending, you know, oh, dumb client. So I phoned Gwyn and I said, Gwyn, can you do me a favor? Can you grab my toolbox and uh, meet me at Helderberg Toyota? I need to fix it myself. And I walked into the, into the workshop and there was a, a, a couple of guys walking around. I said, I need a lead light. I need, well, you've parked in a place for very, very little light. I need a lead light. So they organized me a lead light. Gwyn arrived with my toolbox. I walked into the workshop dived into the engine bay because the one piece of electronics in the 105 1AZ diesel is an immobilizer, a cursed immobilizer. And what the immobilizer does is it switches off and it's mounted on the back of the diesel pump. And it is a solenoid. And as you engage this immobilizer, it opens the solenoid and you crank and fuel passes through. And as you turn it off, electrical connection to the pump, solenoid closes, ta-da, all right? That's how the ignition works, turns it off and turns it on, but the solenoid stops fuel flow. Immobilizer, it's controlled by the immobilizer. I then tried to get, and it's really difficult to get to, 
without taking the diesel pump off. I heard a voice behind me. Hello, um, are you Mr. White? Kind of got up from my and looked around and there was a man standing there. He said, uh, what are you doing? I said, you're the, you're the local um, autosparky, aren't you? And I said, they sent you. He said, yes, they phoned me and we said, we've got, we've got a client gone berserk in our workshop. I said, what would you do if they spent an hour telling you they were looking for an ECU on this car? And he just, he just smiled and shook his head. He said, it's a dealer. What did you expect? I said, okay. And I told him the symptoms. I said, fuel, right? He said, yeah. I said, immobilizer? He said, probably. He said, do you know of them? brake on these cars he said it's very unusual but it's not impossible I know of one that's gone years and years ago one that failed I said do you know how to get this out he said do you want me to bypass it and I said just get rid of it took him I don't know 15 minutes and he bypassed it and my car was running again and I had faultless, the, my, my, my trip on with that vehicle was, was absolutely wonderful. Well, I had a, another electronic fault actually on the car, but it wasn't part of the Toyota. It was a, a Gemini split charge battery system that I had tested and I wasn't sure was working terribly well. And it was on that trip that it actually finally failed. And I actually thought, okay, well it is, I, I had, I suspected that it wasn't working properly in that it wasn't and my battery my second battery wasn't getting a full charge it wasn't getting and it turned out it wasn't getting any charge at all again because of voltage drops so it had a massive voltage drop i sorted that out with some cables and uh, i would just unplug it at night and that was my some total of my problem vehicle problems on that trip actually that's not true i lost a air conditioning belt as well in shakawi i remember fixing that but anyway it was a hard trip very hard on the car and the cars were fantastic Dr. Joy mentioned something else. I want to, I want to, this is the reason why I actually wanted to tell this story. He said, I can match them easy, talking about his 1H said Land Cruiser. I also insist on 16 inch tires and the science is in. The fats do not do as well as the pizza cutters, even though it defies logic. Any long term four wheeler can tell you that just based on experience. So, it doesn't defy logic at all. There is no perfect tyre available now for my Troopy, my previous Troopy, any of my Africa Troopy, my two-point. There is no perfect tyre. The perfect tyre does not exist because tyre makers don't understand this. They know how to make tyres. Modern tyre makers are making tyres that are so much stronger, unbelievably stronger, than they were... 20 years ago, I would do trips and expect two to three punctures and probably the probability of a complete tyre failure was, you know, probably 50% that I would have a tyre failure which would render that tyre, would destroy it. This pattern of fitting dual wheel carriers kind of set in. You know, you need two. You need two spare wheels to go expedition overlanding. You need two spare wheels. No, you don't. <clears throat> the the expeditions I've done in Australia, 
have been extreme in terms of canning stock route. It's not extremely hard on tires. It's hard on tires, but not extreme. And I've, I didn't have a single, single flat I was using on my first canning was a BFG KM2 all terrains on a 235-85, which are a little narrow. They're pizza cutters, but they're also 32 inch, they're actually 31.7 inch diameter. So that diameter's a little low. And I find that those narrow tires actually, their weakness is actually on tar. They don't perform well on tar at speed. Off-road, fantastic. So even a fairly small wheel and a fairly narrow tire. That's the same tire size as we had on the Range Rover on our 2022 canning trip. We had uh, Falcons. I have Falcons on my current troop carrier, the grey one. They're two 6575s, so again a 31.7 inch, which is not big enough. It's not quite big enough. So I now go big enough, which is a 33 inch, which is the tyre diameter you want for troop carriers. And I think so many of you will agree with me. For the kind of vehicles we drive, 33 inches is optimum. 35 for off-road, yes, would be nicer, but you lose a lot on-road. They cost a lot to run because they're expensive you know, on fuel. They use more fuel. Uh, the steering tends to be heavier and the general feel of the car isn't as good. You want a trippy to perform like it's supposed to, like the people in the factory designed it to do, you put in the tire size that they that they engineered the car around, which is a 33 inch narrow tire. So the tires that are supplied with it are of such low quality that I, uh, and, they, and they have poor grip, especially on tar. They underperform on tar. So if you, you know, you do a lot of getting to the destination on tar, day after day after day after day, on tar at 100, 110, they perform badly. And when it rains, they perform very badly. So we upgrade our tires, a more robust tire, a stronger tire. So what do we do? We go mud terrains, mud terrains, noisy and stronger. Yes but noisy. So the best tire makes in my book, again, don't make the tire that I want. I now with the new Troopy must go, I want to go 33s. 33 is the right diameter, but I have to go too wide and it becomes heavy. That steering becomes heavy. They're not as good off-road. Now, some of you will say, oh, but what about sand? What about sand? And I've said this before and I'll say it again. What about sand? You need wide tires and sand. No, you do not. You do not need wide tires and sand. Get it out of your head. You are wrong. That is a misnomer and it is fundamentally incorrect. Yes, because a wide tire, when I let it down, bulges. Again, you are fundamentally incorrect. The additional flotation, in other words, the reduction in rolling resistance by lowering the tire is caused by the lengthening of the tread, not the additional width. The, width, the additional width counts for 
nothing in the equation. Almost nothing. It's the width that people assume is because they see these fat tires and they think, I need a fat tire. But it's not the width. Because what a fat tire does, as a wide tire moves through soft ground, particularly sand, okay, it builds a wall in front of it. It actually builds up a wall and then and then pushes the wall. So the higher the wall, the higher the rolling resistance until you can't overcome this resistance and the car will not move and it bogs down. If you can prevent it sinking, then the wall built up in the front of the tire gets low. So imagine if you can stop it sinking and narrow the width of that wall. How do you do that? You reduce the tire pressure so it doesn't sink and you narrow the tire so it's not as wide. The higher the profile the tire. So the moment you go 17 inch you're reducing your profile, you're reducing the effect of the length of the tread on the ground lengthens and the moment you reduce the sidewall height ratio i.e. put a 17 inch per rim put an 18 inch rim and so on what you're then doing is you're reducing the height of the sidewall which you are reducing the ratio of the length of the footprint which means you are increasing the rolling resistance on soft ground so what is the ideal tire well if you want to just drive on sand and you're going to spend your entire life on sand don't go 16 inch go 15 inch go for a tire size that gives you the the biggest possible aspect ratio the highest possible aspect ratio then you can find as narrow as you can find and that's the problem as narrow as you can find nobody makes a 255 85 R16 all-terrain tire and when I talk about all-terrain I'm not talking about the incredibly heavy duty tread that are noisy heavy on fuel poor performance in the wet kind of performance you get out of all mud terrain tires all of them and I'm running now these Falcon mud terrains. Uh, they're 265 75s. The width is about perfect, but they're not, the diameter isn't. So I'm getting a little bit of advantage because I'm not too wide, but I'm losing even more advantage by not having a big enough diameter. Come, tire makers, I, I'm, if you, if a tire maker had to bring a, and here's the criteria, you want to build a tire for the 4x4 enthusiast, they'll go, wow, wow. I'm getting great fuel economy because I don't have all that rubber rubbing on the road. I'm getting great off-road off -road performance because I've got that 33-inch. I'm getting marvelous handling and feel because it's not too wide. I'm getting sensational performance because I'm getting all the advantages of a narrow tire with all of the advantages of a large diameter tire without having to deal with the noise and heavy fuel consumption and poor wet road performance of a mud terrain tire. 
and to clarify you want an all-terrain tire with a three-ply sidewall such a product does not exist anywhere in the world there are some that come fairly close but none of them hit the mark the very fact that an all-terrain tire exists is because tire manufacturers are saying we need something that lies between the 4x4 enthusiast that wants off-road performance and somebody that wants on-road performance as well. Well, I'm suggesting that that tyre size and that configuration would be the ultimate all-terrain tyre because it's not a mud terrain. You will get very good performance on-road, but because of its size and configuration, you will get outstanding off-road performance and soon as people start actually using it and going wow this is unbelievably good so much better than those hor good looking but horrible wide tires i had on before you will be a market leader so that's my message to tire makers yeah, I know why you're making wide tires, because the entire world thinks that if you want to go off-road, you need wide tires. And I've done the all-terrains, I've done the mud-terrains, I've done these different sizes. You know what I'm having to settle with? 285, 285.75s, because I want 33 inches, and I have to deal with the extra width. It's a compromise. It's a massive compromise. So what do I do? Compromise on size, 265.75. Compromise on width, 285.75. The other part about this build is that it's now seven years since I moved with my family to Australia. Uh, those of you who don't know, I'm actually English-born. I spent 38 years living in South Africa where I met Gwyn. My children were born in South Africa. We moved a short period to the UK, a little under two years, and moved to Australia in November 2016. And we still consider it all one of the best decisions we ever made. I love this place. I love living here. Perth is a lovely, lovely place to live. I can hardly fault it. And, and the four-wheel drive industry welcomed me with such open arms that I, I want to in some way pay back. So my trip carrier is going to be an Australian build. I am going to use Australian products. So like my Africa build is largely African products, or certainly available in South Africa, made there where possible and practical. Likewise, my troop carrier, my 2.8, will be made from accessories built, made in Australia. And I would also like to celebrate the Australian four-wheel drive industry in that many of the products that I am fitting to the car are owned and made by smallish family businesses in Australia. And there's so much great kit in this country, not just from the big players, from the small players too. So that's my project. Hope you've enjoyed this morning's little vlog. See you next time.